0: We're looking again at John four twenty to 24, and as I mentioned yesterday, ten times in those verses is the mention of worship in one way or another. One thing I would call to your attention is verse 24. We'll use that as kind of a launching point where Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There is a must here in regard to worship. And as we saw yesterday, we are called to worship. We looked yesterday at the importance of worship. And today I want to talk to you a little bit about the object of worship. You'll notice in verse 24 that it says, God is spirit. You will also notice back in 23 that it says we should worship the Father. Two things then here identify the object of our worship. God who is spirit and God who is the father and that's what we want to talk about probably today and tomorrow are any of you familiar with the organization known as the Masons you probably are okay there are some uh, other elements in that organization uh, there is the eastern star and there are the Job's daughters and there is the Demolay which are all various phases of, of masonry as it's called and it's a curious kind of thing to look into let me just give you a little bit of insight because I think it sets up what we want to talk about this morning this is from the quarterly bulletin produced by the Masons. It says, Masonry is a divinely appointed institution. It is designed to draw men nearer to God, to give them a clearer conception of their proper relationship to God as their heavenly father, to men as their brethren and the ultimate destiny of the human soul. That sounds good, doesn't it? The masonry exists to draw men nearer to God, to give them a clearer conception of their proper relationship to God as their heavenly father and to men as their brothers and the ultimate destiny of the human soul. It all sounds almost Christian. However, if you keep reading a little bit, you find in their particular document called Morals and Dogmas this statement. Masonry reverences all the great reformers. It sees in Moses, the lawgiver of the Jews, in Confucius and Zoroaster, in Jesus of Nazareth, and in the Arabian iconoclast, great teachers of morality and eminent reformers, allowing every brother of the order to assign to each such higher and even divine character as his own creed and truth require. We do not undervalue the importance of any truth. We utter no word that can be deemed irreverent by anyone of any faith. We do not tell the Moslem that it is only important for him to believe that there is but one God and wholly unessential whether Muhammad was his prophet. We do not tell the Hebrew that the Messiah whom he expects was born in Bethlehem nearly 2,000 years ago and that he is a heretic because he will not so believe. And as little do we tell the sincere Christian that Jesus of Nazareth was but a man like us or his history but the unreal revival of an older legend. To do either is beyond our jurisdiction. Masonry of no one age belongs to all time. Of no one religion, it finds its great truths in all. To every Mason there is a God, one supreme, infinite in goodness, wisdom, foresight, justice, and benevolence, creator, disposer, and preserver of all things. How or by what intermediate? He creates and acts and in what way he unfolds and manifests himself Masonry leaves to creeds and religions to inquire Now that's out of their document, Morals and Dogmas And what it basically says is, we believe in God and God is whoever you want him to be, right? The most secret word, assumed to be the word for God Is transmitted to the candidate who is coming into masonry When he is raised into the mason degree, usually called Master Mason And the name he is given, and by the way, it is whispered to him in some kind of toe-to-toe, knee-to-knee, chest-to-chest, cheek-to-cheek, mouth-to-ear ceremony. And the name he hears is Mahabon. That sacred word, the candidate is told, must never be spoken aloud, never revealed, and always concealed. So now you know. Mahabon. Remember that. The Mason in the Royal Arch degree, a degree through which the Knight Templar is to pass on his way to the supposed Christian degree has another secret name revealed to him at his initiation it is the name of the true God and its is Jah bul ja is a composite Jah stands for Yahweh or Jehovah Bull stands for Baal, the name of the Assyrian God and On is the name of the Egyptian God of the Sun Now, why are you telling us all this? Because I want you to understand that to worship God when wrongly defining who God is, is not worship at all. Do you remember what we said yesterday? You you are forbidden to worship false gods, right? You are forbidden to worship the true God in a wrong form. You are forbidden to, to worship the true God in a right form, but in a wrong manner. And you are forbidden to worship the right God in the right form, in the right manner, with a wrong what? Attitude. And yet that goes on all the time. And the Masons are simply one illustration of a quasi-religious organization that are very, very involved in worshiping a God that everybody can manufacture and worship in their own way and with whatever attitude they want. That is idolatry, because that perceives God to be other than who he is. So the question we want to ask ourselves today is, who is the God that we are to worship? Let's look back at our text, and notice back in verse 24, in this discussion between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, it's a discussion about worship, she's asking in verse 20, where is the right place to worship? Jesus says it isn't a place, it's who you worship And the one who you worship is a spirit and a father And we want to focus on those two concepts of spirit and father And I don't know how far we'll get since our time is limited today But let's talk about God as spirit, alright? God is a spirit Literally, the Greek text would read this way Spirit, the God, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth the emphasis here is that God is in the form of a spirit. Now what is the spirit? Well Jesus said, a spirit has not flesh and blood as you see me have, or flesh and bones as you see me have. A spirit has not skin and tissue and muscles. A spirit is a non-physical being. The fact of the matter is, in the truest sense, you as a human being possess a spirit it's the real you that lives in your body and God is a spirit in the sense that he is non-corporeal that is he is without a body he is one glorious spirit now that deals with the essential nature of God and it's important for you to understand that because inevitably there are people who want to reduce God to some kind of idol they want to reduce God to some kind of human form But scripture indicates that God is spirit. To whom will you then liken God, said Isaiah, or what likeness will you compare with him? In other words, there's no way to perceive God. When I say the word God, and I ask you this, think about God. What's in your mind? What do you think about? Let me ask you this. Visualize God. What does he look like? Can you visualize God? I have absolutely no vision of God. I, when I think of God, I think of G-O-D. Just big letters. I don't think of any image. I don't think of a gray-haired grandfather with a long beard. God is a spirit. Recently a man said to me, you know, he said, "You're a, this is a man who was accusing me of uh, not believing the Scripture on this issue that we've dealt with before on the blood of Christ. I've been accused of not believing in the blood of Christ. I said, what is it that bothers you about Uh, What I believe or don't believe He said well you believe the blood of Christ is human I said well Christ was human and he had blood I said I guess I do He said well that's where you're wrong The blood of Christ is divine It is not the blood of a man It is the blood of God I said the blood of God What in the world is the blood of God? I said, does God have a body? No. Does God have veins? No. Then what is the blood of God flowing in? What is the blood of God? He said, see, see, you deny the blood of God. (laughs) God is a spirit. The only blood that ever pulsed in the body of Christ was human blood. Yes, he was the God-man, And it was unique because he was unique. But God is a spirit. He has not flesh and bones. He cannot be conceived in material form. Now that should put an end to idolatry. God is not an idol. God cannot be confined to a place. Remember back in the Old Testament when the... The children of Israel were fighting against the Philistines And they thought that because they were losing the battle 1 Samuel 5 That if they could go and get the Ark of God That that would bring God to them And the Ark of God was away from where its proper location was So they said, look, the Philistines are are defeating us Somebody go get God And so they went and got this Ark of the Covenant The, The Israelites had gotten to the place Where they actually assumed that God was limited to that box They lost the sense that God was a spirit. Their lives proved that. They were living in disobedience and sin and immorality and apostasy. And when the Philistines came in, in a sense, to judge them as God's instrument of judgment, they said, look, somebody go get God. And you remember what happened? They brought the ark into the camp of Israel. Everybody screamed and yelled and said, hooray, God is here. We're going to win. We're going to win. And you know what happened? The Philistines not only defeated them, but they stole the box. Now, if you think that was a problem for the Jews, imagine what the Philistines had on their hands. Now they have God there. At least that which represents God. And they took that little Ark of the Covenant and they stuck it in the temple of Dagon because to them it was just an it was just another, you know, form of a God. It was the God of Israel that they assumed was sort of confined to this box, so they took him to the proper place, set him in the temple and God didn't like it. So when they came back in the morning, their god was dumped over on his face. He was Dagon, the fish god. Half fish, half man. Top half fish, bottom half man. Mermaid in reverse. Now that's who they worship. So they come back in the morning. This god dumped down on the ground. And, and they're saying, what's going on? It must have been a localized earthquake. Dagon fell over. They don't understand what they've done to, the, to desecrate the name of the true god. So they set Dagon back up again. Next morning they come back and all his limbs are cut off. And his head's chopped off. And God is saying, don't you dare reduce me to the level of an idol. See, God is a spirit. He cannot be confined either in human terms, though he can be incarnate in Christ. God incarnate in Christ is still God who is spirit in the universe. That's the essence of the Trinity. And he cannot be reduced to any kind of image. He cannot be kept in any kind of box. So look at verse 20. This lady, this uh, harlot, who had uh, been married multiple times and was now living with a man who wasn't her husband, she wants to get her act cleaned up. I believe Jesus said to her, "You have five husbands in the past, and you're living with somebody who's not your husband." Now that's a that's a messed up lady. And he confronts her sin and exposes her sin. And you know what? I believe her response was her response is, "I want to get my life straightened out. I want to get my life straightened out, sir." Verse nineteen. I think you're a prophet. I mean you've penetrated to the core of my heart And I want to know now how do I get straightened out Our fathers that is the Samaritans Worshipped in this mountain Mount Gerizim And you say as Jews that in Jerusalem is the place for men ought to worship We say why does she ask that question Because she knows she needs to get right with God And she wants to go to where God is See, In her mind God is some place You understand that? And she doesn't know whether God is in Gerizim or God is in Jerusalem. So she says, look, you've penetrated my heart. You've unmasked my sin. You've promised to give me living water. Now, where do I go to get my life right? Do I go to this mountain and worship? Or do I go down to Jerusalem where you Jews say we're supposed to worship? And in effect, what Jesus says to her is, woman, believe me. It's not in this mountain and it's not in Jerusalem. And the, the bottom line here is you can worship God what? Where? Anywhere because God is what? He's a spirit. And He's everywhere. God is a spirit. That's the essence of His nature. Now what are the implications of that? The implications of that are simple. Worship is not confined to the church. Is that true? It's not. It can't be. Because God isn't confined there. In fact, I've peeked in during the week when no people are there, and he's not there either. He inhabits the praise of his people. But God is not confined to a building. We get very pious sometimes to say, well, well, we greet you and welcome you to the house of God. Wow, that's not the house of God. God doesn't live in there. Down at the corner from our church is a Buddhist temple. We've got the Buddhists on one end that synagogue in the middle and we're anchoring the whole deal on our end I've been in that Buddhist temple they think God is that little pot-bellied fat Buddha thing that sits up on top of this dumb looking thing and these people come in there and burn stuff and stick food in front of this God they push that food in front and you can go in there anytime they do that sometime when you're down by grace Church. just go in the Buddhist temple just be reverent and you know, and, and all that don't cause a stir in there um, unless the Spirit prompts your heart, we'll talk about that sometime. <laughs> but anyway, just you know, just go in there and look around, and stuff will be smelling, and people will be sticking food there because they believe God is there in that place, and they believe God is in that little fat thing there. God cannot be relegated to some place, even a church. Is not truly the house of God. We are his temple in that sense. We must understand that God is a spirit. Now, there is a sense in which he inhabits his people. Just as God inhabited the incarnate Christ, so God inhabits believers. He comes to dwell within us. But he's not limited to that, he is not confined to that. And terms in the Old Testament that uh, reduce God to some kind of form are what we call anthropomorphic terms. That is, in the Greek sense, they are the the body of man. For example, the Bible talks about the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. Right? Does God have eyes? No, no. The ears of the Lord are not deaf; they cannot hear. The arm of the Lord is not short that it cannot heal. No, those terms are used so we'll understand that God can perceive what's happening. He can hear what's happening. He can act with power. And so you have to put it in human terms. I mean, how else would we understand sight without eyes? I mean, if the Bible said God sees with his glibbers, that doesn't mean anything to us. Because the only way we know about seeing is with what? Eyes. So you reduce God in a sense to anthropomorphic terms that express his ability to do things that we understand can only be done through human Bodies, human form, human limbs, human organs. Even temples in the Old Testament, you think about, well, didn't God dwell in the tabernacle? Didn't God dwell in the temple? Yes, in a symbolic sense, God revealed His presence there, but He wasn't confined there. Temples were only symbols. They were only points at which people could see and be reminded of the presence of God. The temple was to remind them of the reality of God, not to confine God Look for a minute at Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 7, and verse 48. And this is a very basic truth. It says in verse 47 that Solomon built a house. Of course, Stephen is preaching here. That Solomon built a house for the Lord. However, verse 48 says, The Most High does not dwell in houses made, what? By human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne. He's quoting Isaiah 66. The earth is my footstool or the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand that made all things? How are you going to make something to contain the infinite God who made everything? In the 17th chapter of Acts, as Paul confronts the philosophers of Athens on Mars Hill, They've got this extra altar. They've got altars to Zeus and altars to all their other deities up on that Areopagus and they have all their gods represented with their little altars and then they have this one altar to an unknown God. They just want to be sure they haven't left anybody out in case you might get mad so they just uh, have an unknown God. And he says, What you worship in ignorance I proclaim to you. And says this in verse 24, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in what? Temples made with hands. Verse 28 says, In him we live and move and exist. He's everywhere. God is spirit. The implications of this are tremendous. Tremendous The ignorant Jews had confined God to a temple The Syrians in the Old Testament Called the God of Israel The God of the mountains You say oh that's nice That's poetic Yeah that's nice The God of the mountains You know why they called him the God of the mountains Because the Syrian gods were the God of the valleys And it was as if God was confined to the mountains 1 Kings 20, 23 And their gods took care of the valleys But any true student of scripture knows that God is a spirit and he can be confined not at all. Not at all. He is spirit. Now what are the implications of this in terms of our own lives? The first implication of the fact that God is spirit is that, as I said earlier, we can worship him anywhere, anytime, right? Are we ever out of his presence? Is there ever a moment of time that we're out of the presence of God? No. He is everywhere the theologians call that omnipresence now to understand that God is spirit and listen carefully to this because this is the heart of what we're going to learn this morning to understand that God is spirit in one sense is a a frightening thing the comforting aspect of it is that we can worship him anytime the discomforting aspect of it is that no matter what we're doing he's what he's there Okay, so it's a two-edged sword, isn't it? We have the privilege to worship God at all times and all places, but we also have to accept the fact that He is there at all times and all places. You remember 1 Corinthians 7, it's the most interesting passage. It talks about a believer in whom the Lord dwells. And it says if you go out and connect up with a prostitute, you go out and have an illicit sex activity, You have, it says this, joined the Lord to a prostitute. Poof, pretty frightening. In other words, no matter where you go or what you do, God is involved. He is a spirit. He is everywhere. He's unaffected by evil like a sunbeam shining into a garbage pile. The garbage doesn't taint the sunbeam. And God is pure and remains pure no matter what the purity of God touches... But it's sad to think about the fact that while we rejoice that he's everywhere and we can worship him any time, we also are a bit fearful because the fact that he is everywhere at all times indicates that he's there when we wish that he wasn't there. He's there. So there needs to be a sense of awe. There needs to be a holy respect in the way we live our lives. God is spirit. He is to be worshipped at all times and places. And he is there at all times and places. And I wouldn't be fair to my own heart and to the text of Scripture if I didn't warn you and warn my own heart again about this reality. Go back to Isaiah 6, a very rich and powerful illustration of this very point. And I don't want to dwell on this, but just to touch it as an illustration of what's in my heart when Isaiah died it says in chapter 6 verse 1 in the year that King Isaiah died or the year of his death seventy seven forty B.C. been king for 52 years and he died because he thought he could encroach upon the priestly role and the Lord gave him leprosy and he died Second Chronicles 26 tells the story then Isaiah sees the Lord alright Isaiah goes to, to see God he goes to worship God and um he rushes as it were into the temple His king is dead His nation is apostate They're filled up with sin Chapter 5 names their sins They're into into materialism Adding land to land Field to field House to house Just accumulating everything they can They're into drunkenness Wine, they start drinking in the morning and wine inflames them at night. And they've got the wild parties going and the orgies and the music. They've perverted right and wrong. They've twisted everything. Their leaders are taking bribes. Their leaders can be bought and sold for the right price. Their leaders are drunken. Uh, Moral perversion exists, arrogant conceit. They've just done every terrible thing you could imagine. And so God is judging them. That's his judgment in chapter 5. And then God takes the life of their king. And so the judgment really begins to be seen. And in the midst of that, Isaiah wants to see God. And so it's time to worship. So he rushes into the presence of God. He sees God in verse 1 and he sees him on a throne, lofty, exalted. This is a vision now. this isn't. He can't see a spirit, but in a vision. God somehow transmits the reality of that scene to him through a vision. You say, what's a vision? I don't know. I never had one. It's more than a dream and less than reality, but it is perceivable to the human mind when God desires that it be perceived. It's an awakening of your imagination to the degree where it becomes so real it's indistinguishable from reality. So he sees God and he's high and lofty and exalted and his emanating Shekinah glory fills the whole temple and he sees this incredible vision of God. And he is made aware of the fact that God is there, that the king may be dead and the nation may have hit the, the low point of its life, but God is still there. And he sees the seraphim, and they have six wings, as we mentioned yesterday, and they're crying, holy, holy, holy. And that's what I want you to know. When he saw God, what what attribute of God was most dominant? His what? His holiness. Now, if God is a spirit, and God is everywhere, and God is holy, then that is that element of God which should be so much in our consciousness. We have to keep in mind at all times that God, who is everywhere and can be worshipped anytime and place, is a holy God. What does holy mean? Separate. To put it in a simple statement, it is that he is utterly other than we are. We are sinful and he is not. That's the basic idea. He is utterly different than we are. He is perfect, flawless, without sin. So here comes the prophet, he has this tremendous awareness of the presence of God, he sees God as holy, and by the way it's the only attribute of God ever repeated three times, it's the dominant attribute of God because it states that he's utterly unlike we are in his purity, and when he sees God in all of his holiness in this tremendous scene, he's scared to death, he's frightened. The foundations of the threshold tremble, the whole temple place where he is begins to shake. And he says, Woe is me. That means to damn me, to curse me, for I am ruined. And then he begins to look at himself and says, I'm a man with a dirty mouth, I come from a people with dirty mouth. In other words, when you see how holy God is, all you can see about yourself is your what? Your sin. I want to tell you something basic about worship. A true worshiper is always overwhelmed with two things, the holiness of God and his own what? Sinfulness. And if those things Aren't true Of your worship Then your worship Is something less Than that Which God designed God is everywhere God can be worshipped Everywhere That's A wonderful thought He is available To you No matter where you are He's not confined To church He's not confined To chapel He's not confined To some cathedral He doesn't live In places like that He is everywhere You live And move And have your being In his very presence And you can worship Instantaneously And momentarily At any time And any place The the other side of it is That you better remember When you go into his presence That he is infinitely holy And when you see that You'll understand about yourself That you are sinful That's exactly what Isaiah recognized He saw his sin And he said I have a dirty mouth He say why did he refer to his mouth Because his mouth was his trademark He was a prophet wasn't he And where does sin reveal itself most readily Right here right That's the toughest part of you to control You can't do anything But you can anything. And out of the uh, heart, the mouth, what? Speak, says the scripture. So he looked at his mouth and saw his sin. And when you truly see God who is spirit, God who is spirit, who is holy, you're going to see your own sin. And so there's built into true worship and to this idea that God is a spirit, this great reality, the sense of brokenness, the sense that you're sinful and you're unworthy. You remember Abraham had the vision of God in Genesis 18 And he he confessed that he was dust, dust and ashes That he was nothing And Job when he saw God said I heard of you with the hearing of my ear Now my eye sees you and I hate myself I abhor myself I repent in dust and ashes He said I mean I see what a wretch I am Manoah the father of Samson Judges 13.22 Saw the Lord and said We'll die, we'll die Told his wife He said we'll die Why are you going to die? Because I saw God And if I saw God God saw me And if God saw me I'm dead That's the idea Because if God saw me He saw my sin Habakkuk trembled In chapter 3 verse 16 trembled Just shook When he perceived He was in the presence of God and when God spoke his holy word through Haggai, it says the restored remnant of the people of God, feared the Lord. And even Jesus created fear in the heart of people. I wish we had time to develop that. It's incredible to go through the New Testament and see how people were literally terrorized by Christ. He healed a woman, remember, who touched his garment and it said she was terrified Why? Because she knew that she was in the presence of God. How did she know that? She had just been healed. And when she knew she was in the presence of God, she knew her sin was exposed. And she was terrified because she was fearful she would be instantaneously judged. And the disciples, you remember, on the Sea of Galilee were afraid when the storm came and then Jesus stilled the storm and it says they were exceedingly afraid. And as I told you last year, what's worse than having... A storm outside your boat, having holy God in your boat. See, because He sees. It's wonderful to know that God is a spirit and can be worshipped anywhere. But it's also wonderful to know that God is a spirit who is holy. And if you're going to worship Him, you're going to have to face your sin. And the true worship has built into it because God is that spirit who is holy. The sense of confession, the sense of repentance, the sense of brokenness. That's so basic. You remember Peter? The, the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth We all identify with Peter Peter inevitably stuck his foot in his mouth um, And you remember one time he was fishing He tried to fish in Luke 5 And Jesus, they weren't catching anything So Jesus said, throw your net on the right side of the boat Remember that? And he threw his net on the right side of the boat They got so many fish, it's just impossible to get them all in and What was Peter's response? Wow, what a miracle! Is that what it was? Well I'm I'm going on Christian TV Tell about this Go on the road with this miracle Boy this is unbelievable All these fish No here's Peter's response Throws the net in Pulls all the fish Says this Depart from me O Lord For I am a what? Sinful man Go away I can't stand the intimidation I mean Who controls the fish? God You're God Uh, You're God I see you You see me You see me You see sin Go away That's the whole point I can't take the intimidation. I think I mentioned to you before a pastor who told me that Jesus comes into his bathroom and puts his arm around him and talks to him. I had said one question. Uh, he said, uh, usually it's when I'm shaving in the morning. And uh, I said, uh, the real Jesus? I mean, Jesus Christ comes in the bathroom, puts his arm around you when you shave? Yes. I said, one question. Do you keep shaving? You keep shaving? Or do you fall on your face on the ground in absolute terror? If Jesus came in the bathroom while I was shaving, I'd be a wreck. God, that close. People treat that with such idiocy. You know, this guy who goes to heaven and comes back, you know. Dr. Eby, I heard him again on TV the other night. Said he'd been to heaven and back and he came back to announce there were no bathrooms in heaven. You know. Foolish foolish part and then he said I was telling Phil Johnson then he said you know I, when I went to heaven I had a certain tie on and he said that tie still has the smell of heaven and he said every time I want to renew my trip to heaven I go in my closet and smell that tie because I have a tie that smells like it Phil Johnson said that's nothing I got a pair of socks that smell like hell and I don't know how but anyway that's another story <laughs> if you're going to be foolish I mean, you get the message, right.'" the same kind of foolishness. By the way, that man said he'd been to Helen back too, but I don't know whether his socks were affected by the trip. <laughs> Pretty foolish kind of talk. You know, we, we laugh at that and we intend to laugh at that. We laugh at that, but that pulls down something that's very sacred to a very almost stupid level, does And when you think about the fact that we worship an infinitely holy God, a God who is Spirit who is everywhere boy that ought to have an impact on our life who do we worship we worship God the God of the Masons not on your life not the God who can be defined any way you want to define him but the God who is the Spirit who is holy he is all places at all times he is there for your worship at any moment in your life but every moment that you are in his presence, which is every moment you live, you are exposed to him for what you really are. And so the heart of true worship is to be able to reach out and worship God at all times in life with a sense of your own sinfulness and a sense of gratitude that he in Christ has forgiven your sin. Isn't that wonderful? You say, boy, if I think about that too much, I won't ever go and consciously into the presence of God because all I'll think about is my sin. But you remember Isaiah 6, that the angel came from off the altar, put a coal on his tongue, and purged his sin? Christ has done that. So on the one hand, we're free to worship at all times and all places. On the other hand, it makes us aware of our sin. But on the other hand, Christ has provided forgiveness. Amen? Wonderful. Well, God is not only spirit, he is Father, and that's for tomorrow. Let's pray.